Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Dr. Hugh Durham is a Perth-based medical doctor who is a fellow of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, a fellow of the Australian College of Remote and Rural Medicine, a member of the Australian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine, and a member of the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. Dr. Durham has been treating Australian patients with Lyme-like illness since 2010, with over 1,200 patients testing positive, and recently gave evidence at the Senate inquiry into tick-borne disease and Lyme-like illness in Australia. As a holistic practitioner, Dr. Durham offers a multifaceted treatment approach to chronic disease, employing nutritional, herbal, and conventional medicines. Welcome, Dr. Durham. Thanks for taking time out of your practice to speak to me today about Lyme-like illness. Um, to start off with, perhaps if you can tell the listeners how you got into treating Lyme-like illness and or perhaps, first of all, how you got into integrative medicine and then into the, the realm of treating Lyme-like disease. Um, I was... Uh... I was I was very fatigued myself after a tiring stint of country practice, and became interested in fatigue states. Then, after a few years of learning more about that and treating some with some success, uh, another practitioner, another medical practitioner, tested one of my one of my worst patients, my most fatigued patients, and found he had Lyme disease. So I started testing, and the more I tested, the more I found. Great. And when, when was that? That was in the 2000s or 2010 or so? That's about 2009 or 10, yeah. Great. And since then, how many patients do you think you've seen or treated that you suspect has Lyme-like disease? Oh, about 1,000. 1,000, wow. And so just to give people a bit of a context, you're in Perth um, and we're obviously seeing you know uh, outbreaks or we'd want to call them epidemics in certain areas, Perth and Melbourne and all across the Eastern Board. Can you give us a bit of a sense of what's happening in, over in WA? Well, the, the, pattern of, the pattern of Borreliosis seems to be different in the Eastern States and, and WA. In WA, we have a predominance of fatigue states and arthritis similar to the American pattern, uh, to the Northeast American pattern, I should say. And in the Eastern States, there's a much more neurological illness similar to what they have in Europe. And the bugs that they have found, the bugs that they have found and sequenced in the eastern seaboard have been Borrelia, I think it was Afzelii from memory, I could be wrong, it might be Garinii, I think it's Afzelii. And the five patients that I've managed to get an adequate PCR to get sequencing in WA have have all been Borrelia bugdorferi. Okay, and we'll get into it more in detail. But um, these are people who've never left Australia. That was going to be my next question. Finding an editor who's willing to publish it. Yes, yeah. So, and have you um, felt much um, opposition to to treating Lyme-like disease, and you know, claiming that you've seen Borrelia and people haven't left Australia and so forth? How's that been from a professional? Well, yeah. Well, you know, the average, basically ignorant doctor says it isn't here. It's all in your head. Go and see a psychiatrist. Well, there's nothing really wrong with you or whatever, you know, or variations on those approaches. Yeah. And you've been relatively public about this. You spoke at the um, relatively recent uh, Senate inquiry on Lyme disease. And I noticed yeah. in a lot of news articles about patients who are suffering from Lyme-like illness in, in Australia, particularly in Perth, that you're often interviewed in those. So you're, you're certainly... Well, I've only actually been interviewed probably three times. I just keep on replaying the old clips. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But yeah, you certainly um, spoke at length at the, the Senate inquiry, and that was um, really powerful stuff. 
Can you give us a bit of a, um, for those who haven't listened to it, what occurred there? Oh, I can't remember the details of that. Okay. But basically, I've, I've found that um, people who haven't have never left Australia or indeed never left WA have got a tick bite, a bullseye rash, a flu-like illness, and basically the docs say, oh, piss off. I had one from the Northern Territory who got a tick bite, a bullseye rash, a flu-like illness. Then he got really worried when half of him was paralysed for a couple of hours. So he went along to Alice Springs Hospital and uh, the doctor actually did the Lyme disease serology and it was positive. And she said, well, isn't that interesting? It isn't in Australia. Go away. There's nothing wrong with you. (laughs) Wow. Didn't even proceed on to the second tier test. Wow. You know, there's such unscientific ignorance, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So tell me about some of your patients um, often. and yeah, we spoke... to, me, to me, the philosophy of science is observing the phenomena and then formulating a theory. And if the phenomena you observe don't coincide with the theory, then you revise your theory. Correct. But... Whereas the people are saying, oh, the theory is there's none here. Therefore, the phenomena that we're observing are false. And just, which is completely unscientific. No, they're just ignoring the, those seemingly, you know, and to say that, And to say that I've got, say, 600 false positive tests defies reason. True. There just aren't enough false positives to fill the bill. Yes, there are false positives. False negatives are much more common. Right. We'll get on to um, testing in a moment. I uh, just want yeah. to get a bit of a sense of that the presenting patient you see. Uh, well, I spoke to Sharon Whiteman a, short, a little while ago and gave um, stories of patients who had been um, unwell for up to a decade and seen dozens of doctors, um, had other um, diagnoses and so forth. What sort of the the um, conditions and the, the history of patients you're seeing that finally get to your clinic? Uh, uh, the lucky ones have been sick for less than 18 months. Uh, most of them have been sick or disabled or both for years. Yeah. And what sort of... Can... Most, of them are, most of them are fatigued. Fatigue. They can't think straight. They can't remember things. They can't concentrate. They, um, If they attempt to read a book, they have to read a page 10 times because they've forgotten what's at the beginning of the page by the time they get to the end of it. Uh, some of them are so bad with their brain fog that they can only read a light-hearted paragraph out of Women's Weekly and if they try to tackle anything more heavy than that, then the the words just scramble in front of their eyes and they can't understand what they're reading. Okay. And for, you mentioned there's a bit of a difference in the West to perhaps the presentations in the Eastern side of Australia. Yeah, I would say probably um, straw poll, I would say 10% of my patients would have, maybe 15, have some significant neurological problem. Uh, the most benign of which would probably be Bell's palsy and the worst of which would be motor neuron disease. Right. And um, the Bell's palsies I've managed to do something with, but the the severe ones like Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis and motor neuron disease, I've managed to slow some down. I've managed to even stall a couple, but I haven't reversed any. Okay. And so, sorry, the um, Eastern Seaboard might see... You Eastern said, Seaboard see a lot more of the neurological ones and a lot less fatigue. Okay. And they will have some of those more potentially you know, serious neurological conditions like motor neuron disease and so forth. Well, a a but, higher percentage of yeah. them, yeah. Okay. Now, I just wanted to get into testing. I know this is a... So there's a lot of controversies of in Australia. It doesn't exist and they rely on this, um, the CDC 
approach of the two-tier test. Just would you be able to recap what that process is and, and then highlight some of the, the limitations of that and then we'll move on to what, you, what you're doing. Well, all of the, all of the CDC's um, publications about the diagnosis and treatment of Lyme disease are based on observations of acute Lyme disease. Like you got a tick bite last month, you got the bullseye rash, it's fresh. And then there's a reasonable chance that you'll get positive antibodies in the blood, the serology or the ELISA, but there are others, there are IFT and others available. And then for surveillance purposes, in other words, for statistics, for research, for uh, national statistics for the USA, they say, well, if that's positive or equivocal, then you do the Western blot. And if certain bands of the Western blot, the Western blot is a test looking for antibodies against specific proteins in the outer body of the Borrelia spirochete. And there's, for those who are not familiar with fundamental um, immunology, if you catch a disease, let's say measles, then after 10 to 14 days, you get acute antibodies, which help to fight the infection, IgM for Mike. And then after four weeks, you develop IgG antibodies, which, are, which bestow some long-term immunity. And in theory, they stay high for life and keep you immune. But in practice, it doesn't happen quite like that. The IgM antibodies, as far as I remember, tend to die off at four to six weeks. So if you've got IgM, the theory is that in most cases you've contacted this thing within the last two to six weeks. And if yep. you've got IgG, you've met it at some indeterminate time in the past. Great. And, um, and so now, you get... For surveillance purposes, you have to have both antibodies and a positive Western blot. And the positive Western blot for the surveillance purposes is defined very strictly, saying that uh, you have to have five out of five out of a specified 10 of the available, however many there are, positive of IgG, or within the first 30 days, two specified out of five, I think it is, of the IgMs. Um, and after 30 days, you can't use IgM as a diagnosis anymore. Funnily enough, Datweiler, one of the CDC physicians, has published a paper saying, isn't it strange how IgM is so high in so many long-term Lyme disease cases? So they say you can't do this, and then they say, gee, isn't that an interesting observation? Um, but that was for surveillance purposes, and the CDC website used to say these, not, these criteria need not be met for, for clinical diagnosis. Another restriction they've placed on it was at one time a few years ago, um, they, somebody in the States developed a Lyme vaccine called Lymerix, which was not commercially successful. And at the moment, they're trying to blame that on what they call the anti-vaxxers. Um, and there were two bands of OSPC, I think it is, or OSPA or OSPC. But anyway, the, the P31 band and the P34 band, uh, which, would, uh, which would excite the IgGs, P31 and P34, in the, um, in the Western Bloc, they were taken out of the criteria because this patient might have had a, a Lyme rix. Now, anybody who's had a Lyme rix would know. So to, and there have been papers published showing that including the 31 increases the sensitivity by at least 10%. So if somebody's never had a Lyme vaccine, it's irrational and unscientific to exclude the 31 and the 34 bands. Right. It reduces the rate of diagnosis 
and uh, leaves a lot of patients in limbo. Okay. And some of the other tests, uh, we, you just mentioned off air, that the C6 peptide, I know some people advocate C6 that. C6 peptide was one developed by members of the CDC in which they hold a patent. Okay. It's, it's one of the particular, um, v, I think it's VLSE peptides from a Borrelia, and the C6 peptide is quite good evidence that somebody has Lyme disease. Um, they say that it's something like 60 or 70% from memory uh, sensitive, that's assuming they have been diagnosed positive with the two-tier test. If you have, if sensitivity relative to strong clinical suspicion is about five or six percent, okay. And the CDC take notice of that test because they hold the patent in it. And tests in which they don't hold the patent, like PCR testing or early spot testing and so forth, they say, oh, well, no, we don't really like these tests. It doesn't mean they've got Lyme disease. Right. So um, to practice then, what do you do and um, recommend and, and perhaps for um, clinicians getting into this, how do we you know, sift our way through this? Well, first I send, uh, there, there are two labs or three labs actually that I can use. There are two labs in Germany, both accredited and both have their accreditation recognised by NATA. Uh, one is called uh, BCA Labs and the other is called Armin Labs. The useful tests they do with regard to Borrelia are an LE spot, a lymphocyte transformation test, not unlike the quantiferon gold for tuberculosis we have in Australia. So it measures the amount of interferon gamma okay. excreted by T cells against a nominated target, in this case, the Borrelia or the other organisms that they have LE spot tests for. So if you get two or more spots, one being one or zero being negative, if you get two or more spots, then there's some reaction against the bug. Now, as with the tuberculosis test, it doesn't necessarily mean that the bug is active. It just means it's there. Okay. So in the tuberculosis test, they say um, out, of, out of every hundred positive quantiferon gold tests, you might get or develop activity of the disease in 10% of these patients and they need to be tested with sputums and so forth and chest x-rays and whatnot just to check that they haven't got an active TB and if they haven't got an active TB they can be just monitored if they have they need to be treated as if they have TB. Well with the Borreliosis early spot test if it comes up positive it basically means that Borrelia is there and why would you test them if they're not sick? Well, if they're sick, and usually they've been through the mill and yes. had just about every damn thing under the sun tested for, and pretty clearly they're sick because, at least in part, they have Borrelia. And so the early spot test, in my view, is a good indication in a sick patient that Borrelia is at least partly responsible and needs treating. Yeah. And the second test? Um, yeah. And sorry, the other, the other ones you, you, you look at? Well, I do the serology, the antibodies, and they're only positive in a very small percentage of cases. Um, there are a number of papers published in the peer-reviewed literature, including by members of the CDC, that tell, that give various reasons why antibody tests will be negative. The, um, the Borrelia bug has got, I think it's 132 or 134 genes and 21 plasmids. It's the most adaptable bug we know yeah. of, and it can hide it can look like you, it can change its outer protein coat, it can inhibit the body's 
ability to make antibodies. It can produce antibody complexes that get that get sequestered in tissue and don't appear in the blood. It can change the complement. It can change the complement reaction so that it looks like self. There's all sorts of various different things that it can do to ensure that your tests will be negative. Yes. So all those ones are relying on like an immune response, and because yeah. all those um, unique characteristics. The, the PCR, of course, is yes. a, a direct detection of DNA. Yes, and do you utilise that test? Oh yes. Yeah, and uh, you, well, you... until the until the pathology regulations in Australia ruled that out in labs that didn't have accreditation, I used to do that, and Australian Biologics in Sydney used to get. 30% relative to clinical suspicion, yes. they used to get 30% positives in incubated blood and 40% positives in incubated serum, together with 15 to 20% of, of non-incubated urine, we could get over 50% sensitivity relative to uh, clinical suspicion. Yes. And that's probably the important thing that's that clinical sus suspicion and the case history and so forth you're um, yeah. obviously relying on. Well, senses, the concept of uh, the microbiology concept of sensitivity is relative. So this patient has been diagnosed with X. Now, how did they make the diagnosis? Two-tier test? Well, quite a lot of tests are fairly sensitive if they're already two-tier test positive. But if they're not two-tier, how do you make the diagnosis? So if you say the diagnosis has been made by clinical suspicion, then relative to that diagnosis of clinical suspicion, I'm gauging my test sensitivity relative to that. Okay. So you are picking up Borrelia. What what um, species? And then also, secondly, um, often there's co-infections. What co-infections are you finding in your patients? Well, um, the Borrelia that I found in WA in the five cases that had good enough PCRs to sequence, they're all Borrelia burgdorferi. All oh, right similar to the original one that was isolated in the isolated and perhaps changed a little in the lab the b31 strain but there there are four strains including the b31 strain which are equally likely to be a match which means it's probably a strain of our own which is very similar to those four okay and to get, to get a, an absolutely 100 percent positive match you need something like 400 base pairs Yes. preferably six or 700. And these ones I got from Sydney, I think the maximum was 160, and the maximum they ever got from anywhere was 200. Okay. So we, got, we, we can't get 100% certainty, but very probable, and the best of my cases had a probable match with a probability of 99.26 nines in a row and an eight on the end or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just off topic, slightly... Um in your Senate inquiry, you spoke about how some patients, and you never quite know, perhaps if the tick's left, they don't know if they were bitten by tick, but some are suspecting other, no. other transmission? Uh, well, sexual transmission has been proven beyond reasonable doubt, and congenital transmission has been known about for 10 years in yep. peer-reviewed publications, including the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, co-infections... Despite the protestations of the Infectious Diseases <laughs> yes. Society of America. So, they ignore their own evidence, apparently. Yeah, yeah so if we used uh, just the conventional bitten-by-tick, bullseye rash and the CDC testing, it's probably only going to be very few patients that actually fit yeah, that well, criteria. Some, 
something like only 10% of people actually develop the bullseye rat. Yes. If you, if you include uh, a red patch, um, then it might be 20 or 30%. Yes, but it sounds like... Maybe, maybe even 50, but there's at least 50% of people don't get a rash at all. Yep. And yeah, coupled with that, people. And then some of those people who've never had a rash, never had a flu like illness, down the track they test a very convincing positive with two or three different tests, even from different labs. So it's not just based on one test. Right, yep. And sorry, finally, co infections, are you finding them as frequently, say, in the United States? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I basically, for Babesia and Bartonella, I rely on, on clinical symptoms, but some of those are backed up by testing as well. Okay. And those, I'm sorry, it's not my strong suit, but that's often the drenching night sweats. What are some of the hallmarks of, of those? Um... Drenching night sweats are usually linked to Babesia, but they can be a, a herpes virus. So yeah. um, Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus could potentially give night sweats. But um, usually there's something else like shortness of breath or chest pain or, or hematuria right. to, to give a, a, an, another clue. That, and, and people often have nightmares to, to give another clue that it's Babesia. And so I find Babesia or Bartonella strongly clinically suspicious in oh, definitely a majority of the patients, well over 60%. Okay. And this leads on to my next area about treatment uh, it seems you obviously need to know what the bug is to then... Oh, sorry, it. there is one other comment I need to make Yes. Uh, about testing and the insensitivity in testing. I went to a very interesting talk by Gas Ehrlich from Drexel University in Philadelphia. He's the professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology and Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. He's the executive director of the Centre for Advanced Microbial Processing and the Centre for Genomic Science, both within the Institute for Molecular Medicine and Infectious Disease. He's been investigating chronic, in, chronic bacterial infections for over 20 years, and he's come up with a number of golden rules. Number one, they never come in ones. There are always multiple bugs involved. Number two, there is always biofilm involved, so the bugs can protect themselves against treatment or, or against the immune system. And number three, there is never a test by which you can rule out an infection. So a negative test means nothing. A positive test means it's there. Great. That's really useful. And the, uh, the false positive camp bleating about this test must be a false positive. The false positive is probably less than 2% in most cases and in less than 1% in most cases. Yep. So, yeah, those are people who... Are discussing false positive, that's their argument about the treatment. You, um, you, know, you can get a thousand false positives in a row and defies belief. <laughs> True. So yes, which moves on to, to um, treatment. If we've got um, multiple infections plus the biofilm and so forth, how do you go about uh, treating these patients? What's your sort of approach well, or protocol? The patients, are, the patients are quite severely disordered. Their brain's not working, their gut's not working. They have mineral imbalances. The great majority of them have mercury toxicity. Most of the ones in most of the country, perhaps not in parts of the eastern seaboard, have a, a, a copper overload, yes. uh, which inhibits everything that competes with copper, like zinc and magnesium and boron and, and um, iron and um, 
selenium and whatever. And so they have a, a mineral imbalance which impairs their immunity. They have a gut disorder which increases inflammation, produces toxins and uh, increased permeability of the gut wall so the toxins get into the system and disorder them still further. So they need they need to have their minerals rebalanced, they need to get rid of their toxins, they need to rehabilitate their gut. Okay, so as much as we're trying to um, seek and destroy the pathogen, it's it's that sort of functional medicine, integrative medicine approach where we're treating all the oh, other, other tiers. People who, people who do it just with antibiotics don't have a very high success rate. Yeah, okay. And sorry, with the um, co-infections, do you adjust your antimicrobial regime based on what organisms you suspect? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and what's some of the, the you know ones for Lyme versus Bartonella and Babesia that you typically do? Well, there are two camps in ILADS, in International yes. Lyme, and uh, wasn't I always forget it as well. Yeah, <laughs> Diseases Society. Um, there are two camps. One is that um, you will frequently find problems if you try and treat everything altogether. So, and the other camp, and and that camp says, which I follow, says treat the Babesia and Bartonella until they're no longer a particular problem, and then starting on the Lyme and other things. Yes. Um, so I mostly treat Babesia and Bartonella, and I would use um, hydroxychloroquine. Artesianate, which is a derivative of artemisinin, which is a derivative of artemisia, the Chinese have been using against malaria for hundreds of years. Um, and those are both antibiotic enhancers, although they have a mild antimicrobial effect. So the hydroxychloroquine plaquenil breaks open the intracellular parasitiferous vacuoles, which are harboring bugs and keeping them sequestered away from the antibiotics and from the immune system. And it, and it neutralizes the acid ones. And the artesianate has a mild antimicrobial effect against um, plasmodia like uh, malaria, uh, toxoplasma, and babesia and salaria. And that also has an alkalizing effect on the gut and an antiparasitic effect in the gut. And then I give um, minocycline or doxycycline. Uh, azithromycin or one of its cousins, and um, pyrimethamine and sulfadiazine, particularly when there's Babesia present. And pyrimethamine sulfadiazine is derived from the usual protocol for treating toxoplasmosis, and Babesia is at least as difficult to treat as toxoplasmosis okay. when it's chronic. So, what sort of time frames are you looking for those um, initial in infections um, to try and clear? Once people are up to full, because you have to step up gradually to full dose, because if you hit them with full dose, start off with, you, you get die off effects and you get big Herxheimer effects, which people find yes. quite unpleasant. So, I step up gradually. And once they're on the full dose, probably a small majority of patients, the Babesia is pretty much gone in three to four months and the Bartonella is gone in six to nine. Okay. And then you move on to the Lyme? Then I move on to the Lyme, and for that, mostly these days I'm using the um, the German BCA clinics protocol, where they use uh, the plaquenil artesinate, and then uh, minocycline or doxycycline, along with azithromycin and um, uh, rifampicin. 
So there's an excellent paper out by Tekin, T-E-K-I-N, on multiple antibiotics in treatment of chronic bacterial infections, which gives clear evidence that three antibiotics of carefully chosen classes are synergistic and much more effective than two. Okay. Great. I'll have to look that one up. If you've got better antimicrobial... Uh, if you've got better antimicrobial effectiveness, then there's less likely to develop resistance of the bugs, which leads on to another of my favourite topics. In the when you've got tonsillitis, the bugs are multiplying every 20 minutes. So every time the bugs multiply, there's a chance for them to mutate and develop uh, antibiotic resistance. But in Lyme disease, the bugs are chronic. Um, they're hitchhiking a ride on your on your mitochondria inside the cells so that they're not so that they're sapping your energy to develop their own and they're a bit lazy and they only multiply every three to four weeks so if you're treating somebody with tonsillitis with antibiotics in in 20 in 24 hours you've got um, 72 chances to mutate and become resistant but um, if you're treating a chronic bug which is multiplying once a month, it's going to take three years to get the same chances of resistance development. I'm not saying that resistance never develops, but it's pretty uncommon. Yeah. People have treated thousands of patients with antibiotics. They can normally count the resistant bugs that they've met on the fingers of one hand. Sure, and this is for a prolonged period as well, I imagine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Commonly two years. Okay, great. And so when do you say you mentioned earlier like uh, toxic heavy metals and so forth are part of the picture. When do you start trying to eliminate that once they're through this antimicrobial process or do that concurrently? Well, when if a person's gut function is pretty good, so their digestion is good, they don't have much bloating, not much wind, their stools are normal and so forth, you you can hop into the detox process pretty well. Um, went to a very interesting seminar with Dietrich Klinghardt and he produced some good evidence that chlorella and zeolite together are better than have been previously thought because they they excrete a, a modest amount of toxic uh, minerals in the urine but they, pres- they excrete truckloads in the stool and that yeah. experiment has only been done twice and only one of them was only one of them was published when Klinghardt did his uh, did his experiment with that in the 80s the, the editor refused to publish it because it was so unusual and then somebody 10 years later went and replicated the experiment and they found that it really was true great um, and not, not that other detox processes aren't good because yes. there's lots of ways to detox somebody yes no I find uh, um, but if, intriguing. if somebody's gut's not right First, you have to get the gut right. If you get the gut and the digestion right and the stool's normal, then you can go into a hefty detox program. But if you've got somebody with leaky gut and getting a lot of toxins from their gut and you go and dump mercury into their gut, it just gets, it just gets sulfated and, and um, methylated and thrown back into the system and then it's twice as hard to deal with. Exactly. Now, you mentioned there's a couple sort of schools of thought with the eyelids. Um, and now thirdly on top of that um, which we've um, interviewed Dr. Richie Shoemaker and other clinicians like um, Dr. Andrew Heyman uh, uh, and uh, started looking at the biotoxin element to even Lyme disease and I think you've even inserted an eye in your um, you're a member of the ACIDS the Australian Chronic Infection Disease Society now they've put in a second eye in there to um, recognise the inflammatory response 
Yeah. Have you looked at this and and does this come into your sort of um, thought process with treating patients? I've I've looked at it, I've tried it a handful of times and I've been very unimpressed. People get nasty side effects from the, um, uh, what's the stuff? Cholestyramine. Cholestyramine, yeah. And then um, Klinghardt said that he finds that zeolite is a better chelator of um, of these things than the cholestyramine is. So maybe maybe, um, zeolite is a way to go. But of the people I've seen treated by others for this, I have yet to be seriously impressed that a problem patient has turned the corner. Okay. Great. I was curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, and finally, it's not something I've gone into in any depth. I must admit, I just don't know enough about it. I know that people need to avoid moulds if they're sensitive to them. Yes, and, and some people are definitely susceptible to them. But what to do about it? I'm really, apart from avoidance, I'm really not entirely okay. sure. I leave that up to I leave that up to other people who've got a special interest in the field. Great. Okay, and then uh, finally, I know patients often go overseas for seemingly more you know, exotic treatments like ozone and this new one of IV laser therapy and so forth. Have you had patients that have done this or what's your view on these sort of systemic... Um, So far, these patients have been sick for a long time. They've spent lots of money. They've maybe got some left and they're desperate. So they go to the St. George Clinic or the current latest and greatest is the Cypress Clinic. And basically I found the results are patchy. Some people get better... A handful of people get worse, some people are unaffected, some people get better and then crash again. So the St George Clinic or the St Clinic St Georg, I would recommend if somebody has convincingly got rid of their Babesia and Bartonella, then they would be a good candidate. The Cypress Clinic, patchy. I haven't outlined who does well at that or who doesn't, but there's there's plenty of failures. The one that I like and I've had not enough people go through to be really sure of the results in any numbers is the Vital Klinik in Bad Driburg, in the middle of Germany, not far from Hanover. It's a rehabilitation hospital run by a guy who was a neurosurgeon until his bad back wouldn't let him operate anymore and became a rehabilitation physician. And he's been treating Lyme disease for over 20 years. And um, the two patients that I've had definitely go through there and come out the other side one was a um, motor neuron disease who was improving, and she went and unfortunately died of something else, but I guess it's better than dying of motor neuron disease. Yeah. And the other one was a lady who'd been disabled for nearly 10 years, and she had three weeks of intravenous treatment and came back and so far hasn't crashed, and that's a number of months ago. Okay. Well, on the flip side, it gives us gives me confidence about the protocols you're using about the antimicrobials, but that really supportive therapies as well. That we've a lot of you know whether it's naturopaths or integrated GPs we've got in Australia can certainly make a lot of traction with them these Lyme patients. And with the, the probiotics, of course, most people with gut problems need probiotics. Most people with gut problems, brain fog, poor sleep, need probiotics with a minimal excretion of D lactic acid. So you need D lactate free antibiotics or low D lactate antibiotics. Yep. Um, you anybody on anybody on antibiotics is going to need probiotics to complement them, and many of them are going to need anti-candida things to to complement them. And the probiotics, of course, need to be separated from the antibiotics by at least an hour, if not two. Great. We're well, full of uh, fantastic advice and gems. So my question is uh, for um, 
practitioners starting to put their toe in the water of this lime like illness have you got any suggestions on further training or how do they become more lime literate uh, I think the Australian College of Nutritional Environmental Medicine primary course is an absolute must if if uh, he's still giving them the um, the Igor Tabrizian's is Igor Tabrizian's lectures on treatment of uh, hair test assessed, assessed um, minerals is very good and his books would be a good backstop if his lectures are no longer being given. Um, then the Australian Institute is AMA, Australian Integrative Medicine Association is quite useful and they have interesting speakers and, uh, and give the integrative point of view quite well. Great. So I'd say ACNEM would be number ACNEM primary course would be number one, and then follow your nose and what you're interested in okay. with their with their uh, in ex, extra courses like hormones or vitamins or whatever it is. And they did one on genomics and epigenomics, which was excellent. Great, and and also Lyme uh, information you found domestically. The Lyme Disease Association of Australia's got a website with lots of useful links. Yep. Yep. So have you travelled abroad for uh, more Lyme training or anything? I've visited the um, I've visited the Lyme clinics in how many in Germany? One, two, three in Germany and one in Czech Republic. Okay. Well, Dr. Durham, it's been fantastic that you've uh, given me some of your valuable time to go through this. And as I said, there's been some really clear gems, some nice clean protocols. I think there's a lot of uh, useful advice here for practitioners. I want to thank you for being a real pioneer in Australia, particularly in the West there. As I said, you're um, relatively public about it on the Senate inquiry and so forth, and I'm sure you're uh, getting fantastic results with your patients. So I appreciate your time. Okay, thank you. Great, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases keep up to date with key industry updates and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.